welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Conor O'Gara. You probably noticed that new intro music and wondered, hey, what's the deal? No, it's it's not related to Tennessee hiring Josh Heupel. We don't have Josh Heupel music yet, I promise. Uh, here's the deal. The plan for this offseason is to do some, some different things because we want SDS to grow and we want to provide even more awesome content for everyone. Marler and I will each be recording our own podcasts. We'll still be having fun, talking SEC football, and getting you through the offseason one podcast at a time. I know, it's not what you're used to, but I am super, super excited about this. If you've been listening for a while, you've heard his name on the pod, so he probably doesn't really need an introduction. He's getting one anyways. Will, who produces this pod, will be joining me every single episode. Full disclaimer, Will is LSU through and through. Will, first time, long time. What's going on, man? Feeling great, man. Uh, fired up to be on here. Um, I adjusted my schedule to where, like, you know quarantine goes where you can just lose track of, like, three hours? I started actually, like, waking up and working out, which has been, like, the first time I've done that since high school. Sick so ride. I may just, like, fall asleep in the middle of this pod, but so far it's been great. That's good. Yeah, I mean, three o'clock, it's, it's nap time. That's, that's perfectly fine. So if you're wondering, hey, what, what's this version of the pod going to sound like? Here's the rundown. I'll be interviewing college football-related guests every week, though not necessarily exclusive to the SEC. That's where our bread's buttered, though, let's be honest. We'll have big picture things to talk about in a nuanced way off the top every single week, and we're going to loosen it up a little bit at the end. That's, does that sound good? Is everybody, hopefully everybody's okay with that. Um, plan for today. We've got a certain Paul Feinbaum joining the show. You may have heard of him. Great, great interview with him. It could not have worked out any better to have Paul on. I, I mean, seriously, I, there is nobody on planet Earth that I'd rather have on than Paul to talk about Tennessee hiring Josh Heupel. I, okay, full, uh, I should take that back. Will, that is not including you. Sorry. <laughs> My bad. A little birdie told me that you've got a fire Josh Heupel take. Well, it's not as much as a fire take. It's just... For some reason, I was like counting down the other day, like how many UCF games I've watched over the last couple of years. Uh, one of my best friends is a UCF fan, like UCF alum, um, just graduated, and I've been to a ton of their games. And I told him about Josh Heupel whenever they hired him from Mizzou. And so I just wanted to give you guys kind of the Josh Heupel brief if you're um, UT fans. I'm a little bit impressed by him. Here's the two key factors I'd say for him. Number one is recruiting. Number two is the quality of the East. He's one of those guys that has these crazy good and crazy bad offensive numbers. He's from yep. the um, Hal Mummy tree, which is the same one that Mike Leach is from. Uh, Mike Leach was actually his offensive coordinator at Oklahoma when he won the national title. So the thing is, you guys have seen the Mike Leach game plan work against LSU. You've seen it not work numerous times. So I think he's the type of guy that if he can get it going... And if he can, I mean, we saw it when he was at Mizzou. That dude was averaging like 40-something points in the back half of that 2017 season. Um, but I think that against, you know, Bama, against Georgia, against those higher-level schools, he's, he tends to struggle. But if you're Tennessee, you know, you just want to be in those games. You just want to be right there. So I think it's a good, I think um, Josh Heupel's a good hire for them because, as we've seen, you can kind of feast off of the bottom of the east, get your feet under you, and like, I mean, what do you think, Connor? Do you think this is a national championship kind of kind of hire, or do you think it's a building block kind of hire? No, it's a building block type of hire. But if you had asked me a little bit ago, hey, who do you think Tennessee can go after and get, given what we know about these potential NCAA violations, given that they're currently involved in a lawsuit over playing, overpaying his predecessor the eight-figure buyout that he was owed, I, I would look at this and say, oh, hey, that's... <laughs> Josh Heupel, you could do a lot worse. It was considered a big loss down here in my neck of the woods in Orlando. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people, Tennessee fans, who wanted something more. And it's not a splashy hire, but splashy hires don't always work out. We got into a lot of Heupel stuff with Feinbaum. A lot. A little peel behind the onion here. So I set up the interview with Feinbaum on Tuesday morning. And Wednesday morning, everything with Tennessee broke. And I, I shoot him a text because, look... I get it. When you're at ESPN, you're a big personality like Feinbaum, you do Sports Center, you do College Football Live, this radio show, that radio show. And that's that's on top of hosting his own four-hour show. Um, so I, I text him and I'm like, wow, looks like we got a couple things to talk about today. And he responds with, 
will need more time. Um, so I'm really, really pumped for everyone to be able to hear that conversation with Paul. Got a great half hour in with him. Um, we've also got something that's been brewing in my brain for the last uh, year or so. And I've been wanting to do each SEC team as a current country music star. I know, crazy, wild stuff. We've got a loaded, loaded show to get to, but before all of that, today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. You know, you've heard me talk about this before, and I, I need to preach the gospel again. If you're obsessed with college football, you're going to want to get this newsletter. It is free. It comes straight to your inbox, keeping you up to date on major news in college football in just a few minutes. To sign up, go to saturday.football. That's, that's it, saturday.football. That's the website address. Go to your internet browser and punch in saturday.football. It could not be any easier. It's free. You can unsubscribe if you don't like it at any time. But if you're like me, though, and you love college football, I'm sure that you are going to love this. Check it out. Go to saturday.football and add your email address today. All right. Well, first, I want to start with the B word. No, not, not that B word. Did you think I was just about to have you bust out the bleep button already? Listen, that would be the career, what, third curse word ever? <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. B word I got on my mind. Buyouts. This has so much to do with how we got to this point at Tennessee. My question and something that I found myself asking last week or last like two weeks really, is the buyout bubble expanding or is it getting ready to burst? Look, I, I was dead wrong about SEC teams firing head coaches during a pandemic. So wrong. It's not like money at the same time, like it's not like money is coming out of the, the teacher salaries, which a lot of people kind of confuse that. But still, I mean, four SEC coaches getting canned, three of which have eight-figure buyouts, two of which are actually getting paid those eight-figure buyouts. Gus Malzahn, 21.45 million. Will Muschamp settles for a lump sum of 12.9 million. And Jeremy Pruitt, of course, gets fired with cause, which negates a $12.6 million buyout. But there's that whole legal battle going on for that. Malzahn and Muschamp are the two biggest agreed upon buyouts in SEC history, though Les Miles technically agreed to a $12.9 million buyout that saw LSU save about three and a half million bucks after he was hired by Kansas. That's technically not eight figures, I guess. I wanted to find the origins of this and actually track this trend to see, can we figure out if it's expanding or if it's ultimately going to burst? So I already knew, and I've said this, I've said this on the podcast a lot, 2020, 33 FBS head coaches had buyouts of eight figures or more. Rutgers, Indiana, Iowa State, Kentucky, Cincinnati, all head coaches working with buyouts north of $20 million in 2020. Two decades ago, buyouts were rarely seven figures. So you might be wondering, when did all this stuff start? Like, when, did, when did buyouts become such a big thing that all of a sudden it's just such a massive part of the contract? Of course, all, all roads lead back to Tommy Tuberville. Jetgate, 2003. Auburn gets caught with its pants down flying to interview Bobby Petrino while Tuberville's still the head coach. Auburn keeps him. The next year, of course, he goes undefeated, Cadillac and Ronnie. Auburn gets worried about LSU poaching him after, who? Nick Saban, leaves for the NFL. Then they put his buyout at $7 million. $7 million. It was an acknowledgement of, hey, we screwed up. Let's pretend that never happened. Auburn, though, for some reason, that only Auburn could explain gave Tuberville a $5 million buyout, even though he quit. He quit. Saban arrives at Alabama. He becomes the first $4 million coach in college football. And all of a sudden, this buyout stuff escalates. Chris Lowe, who, you know, number one Nick Saban reporter that there is, my opinion, he did the story back in 2013 where he calculated that from the end of Saban's year one at Alabama to January 2013, SEC team spent $38.65 million buying out head coaches. The more stunning number, since the end of 2007 to January 2021, get ready for this, SEC teams agreed to pay just less than $176 million to buy out head coaches. Even if you take away the offset money, like when these coaches get other jobs and teams like Auburn will pay part of Chad Morris's buyout at Arkansas, that number is still over $167 million. That's not including Jeremy Pruitt. Six SEC coaches were fired with eight-figure buyouts. All of those happened in the last four and a half years. Of course, that includes Melzahn Muschamp. My question, again, is the bubble going to continue to expand or is it bursting? Because in one sense, you look at this and you're like, wait a minute, how does this slow down anytime soon? Because a pandemic didn't slow this down. 
TV money is greater than ever. Again, 33 FBS head coaches had eight-figure buyouts. Think about why these numbers have escalated. Nobody wants the head coach to succeed more than the athletic director. It's not like the buyout comes out of the AD's pocket. It's not coming out of the president's pocket. It's, not, it's all about booster momentum. That's the key thing to remember with these situations. Coaches use it as leverage because they can't. They're not necessarily negotiating against someone who's going to really have that vested interest in the same sort of way. Let's use Tennessee as the example to be able to understand this. Philip Fulmer swoops in as AD 2017, hires Jeremy Pruitt. Pruitt finishes year two well. Everybody knows. Fulmer gives him the now infamous extension. The buyout balloons to 12.6 million bucks. Why does Fulmer do that? Everybody wants to know. Who's he competing against? Fulmer can justify that in his own brain because he's got two reasons. One, if he, he wants his head coach to feel like he's always appreciated, right? I mean, that makes perfect sense. They also say it helps with recruiting, whatever. If there's any concern at all about Jeremy Pruitt leaving for Alabama, he can justify that in his brain. Now look at Minnesota with P.J. Fleck, who Tennessee apparently vetted to replace Jeremy Pruitt. P.J. Fleck gets a new deal in the midst of an 8-0 start in year three. That deal called for a 25% raise and an increased buyout. His buyout in 2020 was 18.6 million bucks. They went all in with all the row of the boat stuff there. Like you go to Minnesota and it's nothing but row of the boat, which trademark PJ Fleck. I don't think I owe him money for saying that, but whatever. Um, he was treated well there. He was treated really, really well there. And the raise and the buyout, it shows that. He didn't want to jump ship because of how much security he has and because of what he has built. I go to UCF. Danny White reportedly pursued a handful of candidates, which included Fleck, of course, also included James Franklin, Luke Fickle, Sonny Dykes, others as well. White then pulls the trigger on Heupel. Heupel's buyout at UCF, had he been fired in 2020, was 3.6 million bucks. That is nothing. That is chump change. Heupel could have stayed at UCF, where his record got worse and worse in his three years there. And then he could have wondered about his future with a new boss who didn't hire him or give him that extension after he had that 13-0 start. So instead, Heupel goes to Tennessee, where he really didn't see much of an uptick in salary going from $2.3 million to somewhere around like $4 million annually. And I, I, I realized that $1.7 million. I mean, everybody would like that kind of money. But the key thing to remember here. Look at those bio figures when those come out, because I'll guarantee you it is way higher than what he was dealing with at UCF. If the buyout bubble is bursting, it'll be more messes like Pruitt's. Or there's going to be, you know, like Brett Bielema's situation. He also got involved in a lawsuit with the Razorback Foundation after they stopped making payments on his buyout because he apparently didn't find a job that was good enough for them. And it totally didn't have anything to do with the fact that Arkansas knew it was about to pay Chad Morris upwards of $10 million to go away. Didn't have anything to do with that, sure. But if it is expanding after what we saw from Malzahn, Muschamp, Willie Taggart of Florida State last year, yikes, yikes. Could we be talking in five years about a school paying $30 million to buy out a head coach. If Jimbo Fisher misses New Year's Six Bowls in his next three years, which I don't think that's gonna happen. I really don't think that's gonna happen. But think about that reality. He'll have $30 million left on that deal. And it'll be up to an athletic director who didn't hire him, that was Scott Woodward, who's now at LSU, to make that decision. By the way, I went back and, and found what Jimbo Fisher's buyout would have been had Florida State fired him after 2017. Will, you got any guesses on that? Man, his Florida State buyout? That feels like a, just a different universe. Um, gosh, let me think. Because he won a national championship. I'm going to say like 10 million? 40 million bucks. Wow. <laughs> okay, never mind. $40 million. So this belief of you need to have that high buyout just to make a coach happy, I mean, it really doesn't carry a ton of weight. And when you look back at the Pruitt-Fulmer dynamic, I get it. It's part of it, but you can't sit here and say that a coach is automatically going to be happy just because he has that massive buyout. I mean, it's all about leaving for another job. That's the paranoia that comes with this. And what did Jimbo Fisher do? We went from Florida State to Texas A&M. 16 head coaches had buyouts worth $20 million last year. This could easily spike. I guess what I'm trying to say is this feels like such a key point after the offseason we just had schools are either going to realize that this is absurd 
and it shouldn't take lawsuits to get out of signing bad contracts, or maybe Tennessee will have a lot of success with Josh Heupel, and instead it'll be, you know, instead of it being like an end to bad contracts getting signed, every athletic director will think that there's some way to wiggle out of it. All right, Ed O'Dron. He hired a defensive coordinator. You might have seen this. Well, this is something that's very familiar in your neck of the woods. Um, Durante Jones, new DC. It'll be his third DC, this is Coach O, in as many seasons. Is it going to work out? Uh, honestly, who knows? I, last year, I talked myself into Bo Pelini. So I, I said that if Pelini could just sort of, you know, chill out, I, I think he'd be fine. But, you know, at that point, I'm like, look, we got to trust Coach O when it comes to making personnel decisions. Now, though... I don't want to say that this changes everything, but I do find myself wondering about working with Coach O. Admittedly, part of this is because you whiff on two defensive coordinator hires very publicly, very, very publicly. Uh, the Marcus Freeman thing, it was a little strange. It was a little strange. It looked like it was about to happen, and I'm like getting ready for, you know, calm, podcast stuff, to be able to talk about this. I mean, this is a guy who's arguably the top defensive riser in the sport. Go ask Georgia fans about that. I mean, they'll, they'll know about Marcus Freeman after the Peach Bowl performance that he had. Then Notre Dame swoop, swoops in, and he's gone, just like that. Remember, Scott Woodward doesn't lose these battles. He's the one who paid Jimbo Fisher $75 million guaranteed. He's the one who poached Mike Elko from, ironically enough, Notre Dame. Marcus Freeman says he wanted to stay in the Midwest. Sure. All right. Maybe that's a one-off. And the Ryan Nielsen thing happens. He was a Saints assistant who was looking like he was going to get the job. Worked out pretty well last time Coach O went and hired a Saints assistant. Instead, LSU then ends up looking like it doesn't do its homework and the Saints pull out some clause in his contract that prevents him from taking the job. Did that have anything to do with Sean Payton getting burned by watching Joe Brady become a savior after like, he left the Saints? I, I don't know. Will, is that fair? Maybe. Maybe. I, I don't know where his head's at. And the funny thing is, man, talking about buyouts, Bo Pelini's buyout, man, would have been like Ooh. the highest buyout, what, 10 years ago? It's $4 million, it looks like. So, yeah, I mean, you're, I'm 100% with you as far as like, we thought that nothing could change in the pandemic, man, but everything man. changed. The Nielsen thing. He, he apparently wanted the job and told Peyton that he was leaving. Is that an indictment on Coach O? Maybe, maybe not. We know, though, that this search took over a month after Pelini was dead man walking for the entire year. We also know that apparently it didn't line up to poach either Barry Odom or Zach Arnett, both of whom would have been plenty qualified for this job. My question is if we've misevaluated working for Coach O. Go back to the Dave Aranda stuff. It was weird, and we wrote about this, we talked about this, that he made a million bucks less than Coach O. We kind of chalked that up to great for Coach O for not having too big of an ego and what a, what a classy move to realize that he needs to pay his defensive coordinator that much. But when Rana takes the Baylor job, Coach O keeps saying throughout the offseason, the very now infamous quote, that the defense is going to be much better under Bo Pelini. Man, that's a coach who just won a national title. That's a coach who just had six defensive players drafted. It felt like Coach O got sick and tired of hearing about how great Dave Aranda was. It was Aranda, of course, who stayed on board after Coach O was hired. And there's, there's just other things that lead you to kind of think, man, that maybe they didn't have the best relationship. And that's not to say everybody has to have the best working relationship. They won a national championship together. But when I read o Coach O's book, Flip Script, um, Bruce Feldman wrote that, I, I just got the vibe that there was really no love lost between those two. And may maybe, Will, you can attest to this as well. But you know, Bruce Feldman, he talked to everyone everyone for that book, former players, Coach O's kids, everyone in the building, current players, etc. Dozens and dozens of people had pull-out quotes in the book. But who was never quoted? Dave Aranda, his top assistant. If those guys are tight, Aranda's finding a time to be part of that. I get it. He's got all the Baylor stuff. Will, as an LSU fan, is that the vibe that you've always kind of gotten about this Aranda-Coach O dynamic, or am I reading too much into it? Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. And I think that I remember texting one of my buddies about like, I can't believe what a delegator Coach O has become on the way to the championship game and just thinking like, wow. And then after the championship game, you know, it became all about him. And you, you talk about the book. I mean, LSU fans are pretty mad that he spent all this time promoting this book when 
you know, that same offseason, he had, he had um, gone completely back on what worked, you know. You had these young assistants, these game-changing assistants. Mm -hmm. You bring in Linehan, and you bring in Bo Pelini. And it's like, man, like, this is a little bit of that Ole Miss Coach O coming out. And, and we see his reverse course once again, and I'll give him credit for that. But at the same time, it, it's like, you, you keep thinking the book is closed on Coach O. Like I said, it just keeps, yeah. keeps reopening. It's always a unique chapter. So now, of course, he, he goes out and he hires a guy, ironically enough, who worked with Dave Aranda at Wisconsin and who wants to run Dave Aranda's system. Jones is getting paid like half of what Aranda made. I don't know if there's going to be a power struggle there. Uh, I do know that Coach O couldn't fix Bo Pelini's mess. I mean, that was very well documented. Bo Pelini to the defensive side of the ball was like 2017 Matt Canada. And that might even be... A little bit of a disrespect to Matt Canada. Coach um, I mean, he bounced back from that move with Ensminger in 2018, Joe Brady 2019, keeping both of those guys on board. Will he bounce back from this? This feels like just such an important hire for Coach O, and it's going to tell us a lot about what we thought was a certainty at this time a year ago that Coach O, just gotta, just got to trust him when it comes to these personnel decisions. I'll be interested to see how that works out. All right. I mentioned earlier that I caught up with Paul Feinbaum. We talked a lot of Tennessee, but we got into some other coaching things as well, just life things too. So here is my interview with Paul Feinbaum. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Paul Feinbaum. Paul, I've got to come clean here. I think there are very few times in which I finished doing a radio segment and I'm like, Goodness, I, I just got dunked on. That's that's how I felt on Tuesday when I came on your show. And, and you strongly disagreed with my, my prediction that Tennessee would have to settle for Kevin Steele. You were obviously right on the money, and I was I was totally off the mark. Did you get off that call with me and feel like Scotty Pippen dunking on Patrick Ewing? Because I definitely felt like Ewing. Well, I will say this. One thing I, I never like to do during an interview is, is disagree with the guest because the guest is the, is the expert. Um, I was just, uh, yeah, I felt pretty comfortable that uh, that train had passed. And I, I mean, I was really trying to maybe send a signal to you. I, I, don't, I don't think you're on the right track. But of course, being Conor O'Gary, you doubled down. And, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's not a big deal. But, but that, my, my basic uh, modus operandi on interviews is not. To, uh, to to inject my own opinion, which I tried not to, but it was pretty obvious I was suggesting uh, <laughs> that uh, you had been drugged, uh, kidnapped by a group mm -hmm. of uh, group of monks, and and had escaped and and had gone with that take without having uh, re read your phone for a couple weeks. Yeah, you know, like sometimes I feel like when I get on with you, it seems like you're the dad who's pitching um, <laughs> pitching and batting practice right like there are times when I know like if you like on, on a lot of days I'm like wow Paul is just he's serving me up it's it's just on a on a silver platter I can knock this out of the park and then there are times when you kind of you dial one up and like where it was yesterday where you you kind of redirected me in that thought process and you start bringing the heat it's not that you can't handle the heat it's that sometimes you just have to get that bat around a little bit quicker so, I mean, I, I appreciate it. I think every once in a while you can't just, you know, get batting practice fastball. So, I don't, I don't mind it. I think you're totally in the right to do that. It had happened once before, too, and I can't remember what it was. That uh, I was, like, trying to say, no, I don't really think that's what it was. But, you know, hey, it doesn't matter because the one thing about our, our jobs, Connor, is that you know, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not neurosurgeons. Uh, you know, we're, we're, you know if, we, if we make a mistake, the patient doesn't die. True. True. Thank God, man. man. I'd have a lot of dead patients on my hands. Although, although I, I was ready to uh, call a, a priest friend of mine and have you administered last rites. <laughs> I think I needed it. I think I needed it. That was cold take in a hurry. I, I, I know there were a lot of Tennessee fans who were, I, I think, underwhelmed by the hire um, based on the Twitter reaction, which, as we know, is always the best way to gauge what a fan base is thinking. Uh, I, I came away being more amazed that Tennessee just poached one of the best group of five ADs and head coaches, and didn't necessarily even have to break the bank for doing it. I, I saw the deals being reported for like four million bucks annually, which in this day and age is really not that much. You obviously weren't as surprised that they actually went out and made a hire. But what was your first thought when you saw the hypo news on Wednesday morning? 
Well, I was thinking about how stupid I sounded uh, yesterday after you had gone off because a caller had asked me, what do you think about Josh Heupel? And I said, no, that's not, it doesn't make sense because that would show that Danny White really didn't do very much other than call his old buddy and say, hey, I'm going to do this again. It, 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 I just, it was a, I had a blind spot to that hire, even though I think Heupel is a good coach. Um, I don't think Heupel was the first choice. So I, I think White went out and swung for the fences. Uh, I have reason to believe he went after James Franklin uh, probably first and made made a few other calls and, and literally got turned down by everybody, including uh, Tony Elliott of, of Clemson. So I think after he went through that 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 uh, circus uh, act uh, or, or Ferris wheel, he, he decided, you know what, uh, we need to end this quickly, which I, I felt like he would do. Uh, and he, he made the call that uh, he had been putting off, and that was to, to, to Hypo. Hypo is a good coach, uh, but he is not going to inspire many people. And I think what it, what it shows more than anything else is that Tennessee is not a very good job. Uh, and you can't go out and, and hire the best coaches at Tennessee because uh, not only has the program been in a free fall, but uh, it is facing punishing NCAA uh, sanctions. And, and I think for that reason, most people wanted to stay away. When you put it like that, I mean, that makes me feel a little bit better. Like I wasn't totally crazy to think because I, I thought they were going to end up whiffing on their short list of candidates. And I thought they would just, you know, Danny White would kind of come back to the drawing board and say, all right, let's 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 just punt on this for now. Let's revisit this in a year. We're not going to be very good in 2021, 2021 anyways. So it's like, well, hey, what are what do we really have to lose at this point? But I mean, you're right. They, Might they have been a good idea. A I mean, I mean, I'm not sure if, if Kevin, you know, if Kevin Steele wouldn't have uh, elicited a, a more positive reaction. Uh, you may, you, you may have been right on that, but uh, right, it, it doesn't matter now. Well. <laughs> and, and, and I will tell you, I, I think they also went after some other people. Uh, uh, I'm told they uh, did some conversations with Jamie Chadwell, who was everyone's favorite, and they mm-hmm. they came away underwhelmed. Man, it's it's wild to think of what this search has really kind of shown us and even just the dynamics of group of five versus power five and you know what UCF kind of thought it was I'm sure you've had people that have called in banging the UCF drum down here in my neck of the woods in Orlando but you know we're, we're recording this at 11 a.m. on Wednesday morning so by the time that people are listening to this you'll have already aired your, your Wednesday show but I'm always curious about this when it's a big news day like today on, on, a, on a day where you do get that big, huge news in the morning. How do you prepare for your show knowing that the calls are going to be just all over the place? Yeah, I mean, as, as, a, as a former newspaper guy, I prefer the news to break while we're on the air because it reminds me of being in the newsroom late in the afternoon. But you know, a day like today, what you try to do is what you just said. You sample reaction. You don't become obsessed over the first wave and you listen. Uh, you know what I do. Uh, I immediately contacted some friends of mine in the industry to try to get a perspective on what really happened, uh, how they ended up with him. And once you get that uh, understood, it ma- it makes it easier to to fly off the handle. And, and I, I don't. I, I've, I've done that. We've all done that. Uh, you know, I've been live on the air when things happen, and you have to give an opinion. But. Yeah, I, I don't think this is going to really change very much. Uh, I think Tennessee fans were hoping for better. Will they coalesce around Heifel? Yeah, they, I mean, they always do. Uh, but uh, the one thing you won't hear, Connor, and, and this is a – you normally hear this uh, regardless of, 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 of who the coach is. Um, you normally hear the phrase, that was a home run hire. You've used it. I've used it. Other people have used it. You're not going to hear that. Uh, this is more like scratching out a single. Well, yeah, and that's that's the reference that I think needs to be remembered as we talk about just the splash of it, right? But we try and figure these things out, and we always think we have the answers. We thought we had the answers with Tom Herman. We thought we had the answers with Ed Odron. We thought we had the answers with Sam Pittman. When it's like, what, what's, what's Arkansas doing hiring this guy that doesn't have FBS coordinator or head coaching experience? And, you know, things happen. Personnel decisions get made, and you just kind of never really know. And I I just think, I come away from these always thinking it's too early to determine this either way. 
And I don't like putting myself in one camp or the other and saying, look, this is absolutely going to work. There's no way this can't work or this is doomed to fail from the start. But, you know, it's interesting going back to Pruitt, like there were a lot of people, you, you and I included, who were saying it feels like they actually have an adult in the room. Why, you know, based on the people that you have talked to, did this turn so sour so quickly? Because it was the second half adjustments with Tennessee that really were alarming, the lack thereof this year after that was their strength in 2019. Besides just the basic, oh, Tennessee wants to get out of a bad contract, where did it really fall off? And what was kind of the point where Tennessee looked like a lost program? Well, I think it was the revelation that serious NCAA violations had occurred. And it depends on who's looking at that. I mean, I've seen rational people before look at that and try to find a way out. And in this case, I think they already wanted to fire Jeremy Pruitt because of what you said uh, a minute ago. And I still think somehow uh, there was also a realization that Pruitt was about to go and Philip Fulmer should not be allowed to make the decision. And, and, that, and that, that was a, hard, a harsh reality, I think, the chancellor and the president of the university system had to come to. And that made this thing even more, uh, more dramatic. So when those things started happening, uh, it created the, the, al- the, alter- the alternative where they had to go out and fire the, find the AD quickly. And, and I think... I think Jeremy Pruitt has been dead man walking for about three or four weeks. I mean, they have just yeah. let him twist slowly in the wind while they were finishing up this internal investigation. But And, and I, I, I'm not saying Pruitt could have helped himself, but I, I think he probably hurt himself even more when he was interviewed by the school or the NCAA because you know, Jeremy Pruitt, uh, on his best day at Charm School, is pretty unlikable. <laughs> Charm School. Is that a real thing? Charm School? Uh, yeah, I mean, the debutantes get sent to charm school. They learn how to, you know, where, you know which, you know, where, where does the fort go? Where does the spoon go? Uh, you know, don't, you know, don't be a slob. Stuff like that. I never went. I think we, we were just poor slobs. <laughs> I think Hugh Freeze can go to charm school. I think he'd be a good fit there. What do you, what do you think Hugh, about Hugh that? Freeze... I mean, every time I hear him talk. <laughs> I don't know anyone who has gone backwards faster and a coaching search than Hugh Freeze because two months ago he could have won this uh, by acclamation had the Tennessee fans been given the vote. And the closer we got to reality, the less chance he had. I mean, he had no chance by the end. Uh, And, and I, to this moment, don't know exactly what went down, but I don't think it's hard to figure out. But if that is just a thing with, with Sankey and Tennessee, then, why, why South Carolina? Why Auburn? Why is it looking like this search in the beginning, it has to lead to Hugh Freeze? I wrote multiple times. Both of these searches suggest that they're about to go after somebody of Hugh Freeze's caliber, and it would make sense in the return to the SEC. You know, reports, I saw AL.com had reported during the year that Hugh Freeze wasn't necessarily blocked from the SEC in the same way that he was when Ole Miss is facing the bull ban. Why, why this year was it so weird to see this Hugh Freeze thing kind of just fade off with each search. Like the deeper you get into each search, it's like, oh yeah, that's not going to happen. What led to that? Uh, I, I think you do, you have to use deductive logic here, Connor, and it it has to be coming from the top, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, I, I, and I I mean I know uh, I know what Commissioner Sankey has said. Uh, that he does not dictate policy, but that doesn't mean he can't express an opinion. And if the chancellor of the University of Tennessee calls Greg Sankey and says, listen, I want to run a couple of names by you, and uh, you know, he, he gets, she gets stone silence after mentioning Hugh Freeze, that's a pretty strong message. And uh, I'll let the commissioner speak for himself, but uh, I didn't get the impression, uh, nor do I think anyone else that has, has either, that that he was overly excited about Hugh Freeze being at, at either school. Do you? No, I mean, it seems like this wasn't going to be a situation which Sankey was going to endorse Hugh Freeze. At the same time, you just kind of wonder, does time heal all wounds? Does this situation now make more sense? And instead, Hugh Freeze, three potential openings in the SEC that would have made sense for him. And, you know, strike one, strike two, strike three, and none of, none of them really happened. So, I mean, I think that's... That's something that a lot of people are going to 
be looking at moving forward? I, I think people want to know now, and we always ask this question whenever there's a new coach, what's the ceiling? What's the ceiling for Tennessee has been a question that, I mean, you probably dealt with uh, so, so many times on your show. When you haven't won a conference title in the 21st century, you haven't beat a top 10 team since 2006, I think the ceiling is significantly different than what some might think when you have those memories, like you do, of course, of, of Tennessee's glory. But where do you stand on that really, really open-ended question uh, now that Heifel's on board? Uh, I don't think you can ever put a specific ceiling on an SEC team because you, you can have that outlier year, and we've seen it before. Kentucky won 10 games a couple of years ago. So I would have never said uh, – I would have I would have always had their ceiling lower. I think I think Tennessee is heading toward a, a, a very bad and dark period of which it has to be content, even though it won't be, to win – Six or seven games, uh, and you know, I don't know what you know. Depending on when the sanctions come and go, uh, you know, get to a bowl game and try to try to get some momentum going. Uh, it's not impossible to go from that level to to great success, but but I don't see it in the near future. And I'm I'm usually not one that uh, is overly pessimistic uh, because I've seen I've seen a lot as you have, but I don't have a good feeling about this program right now. I I think. Um, I, and I think Josh Heifel is is indicative of that. Uh, you, know, he, he, you know, if he wins eight or nine games in, in the next two or three years, that will be considered fantastic. But I, I think the program has to lower its sights. It's no longer relevant. This, uh, Tennessee is no longer an important program in the SEC. It's uh, it has fallen that far behind. And and I say that as a Tennessee graduate, Connor, and as someone who who remembers. Tennessee being on a similar plateau with Alabama. And it wasn't that long ago, but it seems like forever. How difficult was that for you to, to flip that switch to go from Tennessee grad who, you know, you, you grow up and, you know, you understand this football rich place to having to transition to thinking about Tennessee critically and understanding all the dynamics and having to actually weigh the negatives and not just be, and you might've been doing that before, even in, you know, in, as, as a student, but when did you really have to make that transition? Or is that something that in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, yeah, I mean, I'm a Tennessee grad. I'm allowed to want Tennessee to be relevant and to be good again, but it doesn't mean I'm going to sit there with Tennessee pom-poms every day on my show. I thought a couple of years ago it had a chance to come back, uh, and it just shows you how wrong you can be or naive you can be. But I felt like Fulmer and Pruitt, uh, you know, had a chance to turn this thing. I mean, Jeremy Pruitt is a good football coach, uh, based on what, what what I've heard, and you probably have heard the same thing. Uh, there were people in Alabama that said with a straight face, "I think Jeremy Pruitt could replace Nick Saban." So I felt like they were heading in that direction, um, and but it, but. Yeah, back to your your point about me being a graduate. I've, I've tried never to let that affect me, and 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 part of the reason is that even though I I grew up in Tennessee and went to Tennessee, uh, most of my life has been in Alabama. So uh, I am I probably you know just by by geography uh, have been closer, significantly closer to that program. I went back to uh, Knoxville in in in, in Mar in February, I think it was right before the pandemic to to speak to a group and. You know, we we you know went down memory lane, and I think a lot of people in the audience were you know couldn't believe that I knew anything about Tennessee football or basketball because you know, I'm 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 so closely associated with Saban in Alabama. But yeah, I mean it, it is it is my home, but it is my alma mater. But uh, I I tried never to, never to let that affect me on the air. You bring up the the Pruitt thing about him replacing Saban, and I I can't remember what exactly his exact odds were coming into 2020, but they were pretty good as the you know all those futures get thrown out there, and pretty much every Saban disciple who's ever won a game is on that list of potential candidates to replace him. Pruitt's now out of that conversation. I think we can fairly say that. If you're putting odds on someone, if you had to put down, you know, a future or something like that, I know you talked about, you know, after you came back from watching Dabo Sweeney get inducted to the Alabama Hall of Fame, you know, you're talking about, so you had a different impression of, of Dabo and potentially coming back to his alma mater, but who's kind of the, the one that is first on your mind to think down the road, if and when that day does come, when the immortal Saban retires, who's the one that now in this current context you go to? 
I, I think at the moment, and this is without having seen him coach a game, Sarkeesian would probably be the most likely. It, it, you know, should he go to Texas and have success? Now, if he does, then you know the likelihood of him wanting to leave Texas for Alabama would would be lessened. But but I, I think he has emerged. Uh, I I wouldn't rule Kiffin out, uh, and that's pretty remarkable to think that Kiffin, after getting fired after he quit, uh, could possibly come back to Alabama. But I think he is well he is that well thought of as a coach, and. After that, I don't think uh, the list is particularly long. I don't. I really don't see Kirby Smart making that move. To me, you don't leave your alma mater to go to Alabama. Uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Jimbo Fisher, I could not imagine uh, that happening. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna land on Sark if I had to you know, place five dollars uh, on a bet. Let's uh let's go to a different SEC coach who you know won a division title as well this this past year. I've been trying to figure out what in the world is going on with Dan Mullen. And I, I said coming into 2020, there's not five coaches in college football I would take ahead of Dan Mullen. I think he's that good. But he still hasn't signed an extension, which was reportedly in the works right before the pandemic hit. Scott Strickland made that very well known. And then he has like the most bizarre eight and four season imaginable with some of his public outbursts and you know the two ugly losses during that three game losing streak. He's got three years left on that deal. What's what's the sense that you get about Dan Mullen's future in Gainesville? Shaky, and and that's a that's a pretty big thing to say, Connor, when you think about what he's accomplished. But he he had a pretty brutal year in spite of everything. Uh, the ending was was bad. Uh, you know, e- even if you dismiss his comments at Texas A and M, uh, you know, the Missouri game. Even if you throw all that out and just started the clock, you know, beginning with the LSU game, and then the week of, of the bowl game was a disaster. Uh, you know, his comments before the game, his comments after the game, the report by Schefter that, that he was looking around the, the NFL, the, the really almost ignored revelation uh, that he got a show cause. I mean, that's a big deal. Uh, so, and, and knowing Scott Strickland, uh, I mean, this is a – Scott Strickland's a straight shooter. He's a stickler for, for things. And, and I, I would like to, to really get a, a sense of what Scott Strickland thinks about all this. And, and, and by the way, Mullen was not the first choice down there. We know that. It was, it was Scott Frost. And even, uh, even, even uh, Kelly was, uh, you know, was, was, was offered the job. So uh, Strickland didn't just go to Mullen because they worked together. He went to him because he, he was next on the list. I always raise some eyebrows to me, you know, given their history together at Mississippi State and the fact that he obviously knew him. And if, you know, we, we're talking about Tennessee right now where Danny White goes out and he just decides, hey, I'm just going to call my old buddy Josh Heupel. Now, I guess you could say the same thing about Tennessee because, as you said, they vetted other candidates and it wasn't like Heupel was their first choice. But I always thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, you had somebody that was really accomplished and respected like Mullen was and to go out and want to go after a Chip Kelly, a Scott Frost before making that happen. And you usually see extensions done by now when you've had the success that Mullen has had. But obviously, you know, the end sort of changes things. Um, Florida beating Georgia sort of changed the conversation around Mullen, at least temporarily. But Georgia now, the way that it finished... Kirby Smart rolling. Finally feels like he has the right offense in place. Finally feels like he has the right quarterback in place. It seems like the Georgia hype train is rolling faster than it has in a while. And maybe, you know, you can make the comparison to, to 2008, of course, where they start off number one in the country. Yeah, there's a lot of teams that were kind of vying for number one. It definitely was a unanimous thing. But nonetheless, do you find yourself like sort of telling people to pump the brakes on the Georgia hype train? Or are you saying, yeah, speed it up. Let's get this thing rolling. There's nothing wrong with it because I, th- I think the hype train and uh, helps overcome the season to a degree. And it ended well, but it was a disappointment. And it felt like you know, it was over quickly uh, with, with Alabama and Florida going in the loss column. But, but I, I think you know, Georgia fans are, are, are one of the most optimistic groups out there. And they, and, and when you get right down to it, they should be. Uh, they've recruited so well. They, they looks like they found a quarterback. They were also helped the fact that Justin Fields did not lead Ohio State to a national championship because that would have been hard to swallow. 
Uh, call Bill, Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots if you, if you want an explanation of that that answer. And I, I think ultimately uh, they've been able to move past the season. Florida's crash and burn down the stretch probably helped. Uh, I know Alabama fans you know, get a good chuckle out of the uh, eternally optimistic dog fans. But, yeah, we, we've heard this before, but uh, at least they're in the conversation. That's better than a lot of other fan bases right now. Definitely say that again, especially for Tennessee. Uh, one last thing that I wanted to, to close on here. You've talked before about uh, discussing actual real-world stuff this past year and how that was as rewarding as any in your career. And you said that you really had no interest in, in doing anything else or working for any other network, anything like that. <laughs> you do such a good job of having those those tough conversations on your airwaves. And I don't think enough people... Really give that that the credit that it deserves because you guys really do go there and you're not afraid to. Even if we get a relatively normal off season without the drama that we had of 2020, is that something that you want to do even more? Is that like a like is there a new platform that you're looking for to be able to kind of have those conversations, or do you just kind of want to shift the the focus of the show, knowing what 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 sort of rewards 2020 kind of meant for being able to talk about this stuff? Yeah. I will tell you, um, you, you, sometimes you don't know where you are uh, in life and, until things things start to happen. Um, I know that sounds like a little bit confusing, but, you know, I, I was at a, somewhat of a strange place in, in my, my career. You, you kind of go through a bunch of things, and, and, and then the pandemic occurred. And I've, I found myself, like, like a lot of other people, Really, in a, in a spot that I'd, I'd never been before, uh, I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure how to handle it. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, here we were uh, dealing with life and death. Uh, and and I, I know leaning in is a cliche, but I, but I think our, collectively our whole group on the show did that. And. I was stunned by the reaction of the of the callers in ter- in terms of where we went. It wasn't only it wasn't only COVID. It was you know suddenly the the social justice conversation in, that began in June, and, and I, I I did find it to be collectively the most rewarding uh, point. Now, I'm not eager to go back to those long days of the summer when uh, you know we're debating things uh, uh, that were extremely uncomfortable. It is a sports show. And, and people show up there to get away from whatever is happening uh, up and down the, the news dial. On, on January 6th, while you know most televisions in America were were, were glued to the Capitol, um, I, we never mentioned it. Uh, and I did that purposely, even though I was watching the news channels uh, out of the corner of my eye and not my own show. But it, it can you know you, you know this bit better than anyone connor sports is an escape and i think we have to provide that so i'm i'm not eager to go okay hey uh you know we got we got this going on in washington or this going on around the world have you gotten your vaccine yet um i'd prefer to keep it on message but if people want to call up and share their own personal experiences i do i do encourage that and i do embrace it and uh, I, I am always thrilled when that happens agreed i think that's it makes a lot of sense, and I know that's not always an easy thing to juggle, but um, you guys do just such a fantastic job with it. So, Paul, really, really appreciate the time. I know you got a lot going on today. You're about to go record an interview with Tennessee's new head coach, so um, know that your time is very, very valuable today. So really appreciate you hopping on, and, yeah, I mean, I'll probably see you in, uh, in Hoover, or maybe, you know, I'll, I'll get around <laughs> on one of these. these I'll, get, I'll get around on one of these fastballs that you're going to serve up one of these days. Hey, the next time you're on, I am just going to uh, it's going to remind me of the days when when we would go play uh, underhanded softball uh, after a couple of beers. So, uh, no, Connor. By the way, I, I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, I always enjoy when you're on, and, and I, I try to you know, listen to your podcast as often as possible. So, uh, it, it is my pleasure to be on this program today. Really, really appreciate that, Paul. We'll talk soon. You got it. See you, Connor. Take care. All right, I teased it earlier, and something that, you know, I I get it, look, maybe not everyone listens to country music currently, that's fine. Will, you don't listen to country music now, do you? Dude, for some reason, it's all, like, old country, and then, like, new rap. There's, like, it's like country music didn't happen to me after, like, Alan Jackson. 
You're like Lil Nas X. Yeah. Exactly. That's me in a nutshell. Okay, perfect. Alan Jackson's good. Alan Jackson didn't make this specific list. A lot of people that didn't make this specific list. I, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I want every single time that you, listener at home, whether you're listening in the car, or while you're working out, wherever, whatever you're doing, I want every single time that you listen to this podcast, I want you to feel like you know who I am. I admittedly haven't always done the best job of communicating that, but I realize if you're going to give a crap about what I have to say, you should probably know what I'm about. So what, what, what better way to, to do that than to combine two of my biggest passions in life, which is SEC football and country music. So again, current country music artists. My current top four country artists in no particular order, just in case you cared, Morgan Wallen, John Party, Eric Church, Chris Stapleton. Also pretty big on Tim McGraw, Billy Currington, Justin Moore, Zach Brownband, Luke Combs, Miranda Lambert, Cole Swindell. Again, I kept it current because, uh, you know, people who, I, I limited it to people who have had radio hits in the last decade, which means no Dolly Parton, no Merle Haggard, no Hank Williams. Those are all-time greats. They can shine in their own way. I just see, I, I've really wanted to, to try and keep it current because that's what I know. I got into country around 11, 12 years ago because everyone in my family started listening to it and it opened up a whole new world for me. So here we go. SEC teams as current country artists. Alabama, George Strait. King George and King Saban are ageless wonders. You forget, George Strait, 68 years old. Nick Saban, 69 years old. Nice. George Strait started off in 1976. Saban's first on-field role, 1975. George has more number one hits than anyone in his genre. Saban has more national titles than anyone in the sport. More impressive than any of that is how they have adapted over time. Saban doesn't run the same offense they had in 2009. George's current hits don't have the same sound that they did in the 90s. Write this down, love without it, and amen. Uh, different than, really, really different in my opinion than here for a good time, every little honky-tonk bar. Lauren and I would hum L-I-V-N living so, so much. Summer 2019, I that was like the catchiest little song. He's in his late 60s and he had Billboard Music Awards Top Country Tour in 2020. Imagine being that age and still being that good at what you do. That's Nick Saban. Arkansas, Blake Shelton. Who knows breakups like Blake Shelton and Arkansas? Blake is soon to be on his third wife since he became a star. Arkansas is on its third coach in the playoff era. Blake had to deal with the tabloids with Miranda and Gwen. Arkansas had to deal with the internet with the Bobby Petrino scandal. At their best, both were pretty darn good in two different eras. Old Red, God Gave Me You, Some Beach, Boys Around Here. He had that, you know, you know there, there was like a little bit of that time there where Blake's stuff wasn't really that good, but you could definitely say he spanned two different eras and has been good in them. Arkansas, they had the ground attack with McFadden and Jones. That team with Houston Nuts, so much fun. Then they had the passing attack with Tyler Wilson, Jarius Wright, Bobby Petrino, 2011. No coaching change or breakup keeps Arkansas or Blake Shelton down. They might not be the same baby-faced dude with a mullet that they were in the 90s. That's Arkansas when it was in the Southwest Conference. But there's something endearing about them. They give you entertainment with some occasional hits and a tabloid scandal. Auburn. Luke Bryan. Ever since the national runner-up season 2013, it's been nothing but four loss seasons. Yet you hear so much about them. They always get the preseason buzz. Their worst is bad. Like 2015 Jeremy Johnson bad. Ever since Luke had crashed my party, that album in 2013, it's been nothing but four lost seasons. I mean, songs that aren't good, but get way too much play on the radio. Strip It Down, awful. Home Alone Tonight, hot garbage. Knockin' Boots, barf. Light It Up, one of the worst country songs ever released. Yet, they're household names. We know they aren't getting another miracle year like 2013. We know they're not getting another Cam Newton. We know another All My Friends Say isn't coming down the pipeline from Luke Bryan. But when push comes to shove, they're still just entertaining enough to warrant our attention. Did I purposely give Luke Bryan Auburn knowing that he's a Georgia fan? Yeah, perhaps. Florida, Miranda Lambert. For a bit there, you really couldn't go to the grocery store without seeing Miranda and Blake on the tabloids. For a bit there, you couldn't really go on the internet without seeing Jim McElwain's naked body mounting a shark. Both sort of self, you can call it self-sabotage after that. Florida had a horrific 2017 season and led to the fake death threats. 
Miranda had a very, very different album that same year, 2017, called The Weight of These Wings. Some loved it, it wasn't for me. Kind of worried about if she was spiraling. Listen to a song like Vice, and you're like, oh man, I don't know if she's gonna get it. But like Florida got with Dan Mullen, Florida bounced back with a new, Florida and Miranda bounced back with new relationships. Now they're married, she's unquestionably elite again. I think you can say the same thing about Florida. Miranda's three singles from her current album, Wildcard, all really, really good. It all comes out in the wash, Bluebird, Settling Down. Florida's three seasons with Dan Mullen, all our New Year's Six Bowls, uh, top 15 finishes. Georgia, this might be my favorite one. Morgan Wallen. Man, there was so, so much buzz for Dangerous. That's his new double album that just came out. What else has a ton of hype? This year slash basically every offseason for Georgia. Morgan Wallen is so unbelievably ta talented. He, he can mix up tempos and he can do country ballads. He can do the upbeat poppy stuff, everything in between. He can do where this thing that's like borderline rap where you're just like, man, I, I couldn't sing along to this if I, if I tried. It feels so genuine, so original, so homegrown. But like with Kirby, I find myself feeling like he's gonna do something to mess this up. He had videos go viral of him making out with all those girls at the bars at Bama. Saturday Night Live told him, eh, come back in a few months after that. He shoots a little bit from the hip on social media. You know, he's not necessarily been shy about some of his arrests. Uh, you know, he writes from a darker place. He's not shy about his drinking. Living the Dream song on his new double album was written to display his struggles in the limelight. With his talent, though, I think he could become the biggest artist in country music. With Georgia's talent, I think it could become the biggest force in college football. But there's that yeah, but that just sort of lingers. Kentucky, Casey Musgraves. Casey Musgraves is neo-traditional country. Her sound, her style, they're inspired by mid-20th century stuff. She'll dress like Dolly Parton at award shows. It's kind of weird, but that's just that's her thing. That's Kentucky football. It's a throwback style of football with a defensive focus, run-heavy attack. They aren't afraid to ruffle some feathers. Mark Stoops is an honest guy who talks about disrespect or how he wasn't surprised to see Jeremy Pruitt get fired. Casey Musgraves writes about recreational drug use and LGBT acceptance, which isn't exactly popular in the country music world. Both, I would consider them to be on the rise. Seem to also both have these like cult-like followings with them as well. LSU, well, you're gonna like this one. This is a pretty high compliment. Chris Stapleton, high floor, high ceiling. LSU is the program who wasn't good in the 90s, and then they went to having 20 seasons of eight plus wins with three national titles. Chris Stapleton was the guy who was writing songs for everyone in Nashville. And then once he got on the map, it was like, wow, he's one of the best voices I've ever heard. I've been to a Chris Stapleton concert that was between like two and a half, three hours. And even the songs you don't know, he just blows you away, hence the high floor. I've seen him live three different times, three different states, I'm convinced the second verse he did of Tennessee Whiskey, the third time I saw him, is the best vocals I've ever heard. It gives me chills. I'm convinced that 2019 LSU, a team I saw three different times live, is the best team I've ever seen. Watching Joe Burrow's peak and seeing the plays he made still gives me chills. But it's obviously not just a one-hit wonder with LSU. 2003, 2007 titles to LSU. That, that to LSU fans is like what Broken Halos and Traveler are to me. Broken Halos uh, played over the video slideshow at my dad's wake. Traveler was the song I listened to when I was lonely after I moved 1,500 miles away from my fiance and now wife Lauren back in Nebraska to be able to do this job here in Orlando. Like LSU, when it's at its peak, Stapleton just hits differently. Mississippi State, Carrie Underwood. They both make a lot of noise, that they do. Mississippi State's got the cowbells, Carrie with being on like a billion different commercials and she's got that booming voice. Carrie, I think, hit on a key, rather untapped demographic at the time of her rise. There wasn't really female country artists that had that massive national pop appeal. She goes on American Idol, boom, takes off from there. Jesus Take the Wheel, Cowboy Casanova, Before He Cheats, all smash hits. Mullen, when he got to Mississippi State, it lacked that historical success. There's a very low floor. Boom. Then they finish in the top 15 in year two. They're a yearly bowl team. But when you look at their resumes, and Will, I know this is something you're going to appreciate, there's some glaring holes in their resumes. Like Mississippi State has one winning season in the SEC in the 21st century. Mississippi State went 2-16 against ranked opponents while Dan Mullen was there. 
Carrie, on the other hand, hasn't even really had a good song in a decade. Nobody talks about that. Remind Me with Brad Paisley, that came out in 2011. Carrie's hits started going downhill with two black Cadillacs in 2012. Find me one legitimate, good Carrie Underwood song since then. Both have gone through like a bit of an identity crisis, but they make a lot of noise. They make a lot of noise. Mizzou, Darius Rucker. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's going to sound wrong. That's going to sound weird. Darius is Mr. South Carolina. South Carolina through and through, but think about it. Mizzou came from a totally different conference into the SEC in the 21st century. Darius Rucker went from a totally different genre into country in the 21st century. Hootie! My parents loved Hootie and the Blowfish. Loved them. Will, you like Hootie and the Blowfish back in the day? Is that before your time? That's No, that's right in that window. I'm, I'm pro okay. Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> much like people forget about mid-90s alternative rock, which is so much better than grunge music. Can we, can we agree on that? Is, that? is that a fair thing to say? Will? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's easy, yeah. Okay. People also forget whenever Mizzou is good. They had three 10-win seasons in the 2010s decade and two came in the SEC. Oh, and if you want to make an SEC purist really mad, tell them that Mizzou truly belongs in the SEC or tell them that Darius Rucker's version of Wagon Wheel is better than the original. Ole Miss, Eric Church. If you heard me talk about Ole Miss football in 2020, you know that I enjoyed that team as much as any. If I am a neutral observer of college football, that is what I want. But if I actually had to root for that defense, it'd be really maddening. If I'm sitting at home listening to Pandora or something like that, Eric Church is exactly what I want. Springsteen might be my favorite country song ever. It's up there. It's definitely up there. But you know, like he's got his other hits too. It's not just that. Drink in my hand, uh, love your love the most, homeboy, uh, all awesome. He's got an incredible set list if you've ever seen him live. The beauty of doing that is where I can sit home and listen to him on Pandora. I can skip the parts where Eric Church thinks he's playing hard rock and roll, which was like the entire Outsiders album. I can just block that out. Or if I'm seeing him live, that's when I can go to the bathroom. The beauty of not actively rooting for Ole Miss now or pretty much any time in the last five years is that I don't have to care when that defense lets up a million points. I can just block that out or I can go to the bathroom. When they're on, like those Hugh Freeze years against Bama or Lane against South Carolina, it's a blast. South Carolina. Jason Aldean. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruffle some feathers with this one, I know. I'm very, very ready for that. I kept going back and forth with this between Jason Aldean and Luke Bryan for South Carolina. But stay with me. Stay with me. For like four years, it was like a four-year stretch where few things in country music were better than Jason Aldean. I remember reading this Rolling Stone piece on him where he was compared to Steve Perry because of how he used to belt it out. I saw Jason Aldean in 2015, one of my favorite shows I've ever seen. His hits are awesome. Amarillo Sky, This Nothing Town, Night Train, some of my all-time favorite country songs. Then like right around 2014, he fell off, like big time in my opinion. He stopped belting it out like he used to in his older songs. Seriously, go back and listen to some early Jason Aldean and tell me that he sings the same way now. Hasn't, in my opinion, had any real legit hits since the mid-2010s. Like, mid For like four years, few things in college football were better than Spurrier being good at South Carolina. It's a peak that people will talk about for a long time. They have 42 wins in a four-year stretch at South Carolina. But then, like with Jason Aldean, the fall-off. It was significant. Jason Aldean's last real good song, in my opinion, when She Says Baby, that was November of 2013. That same month was the last time that South Carolina beat Clemson. Yeah, that's the last time they also had late national relevance too. Tennessee, oh boy. Yeah, we're gonna ruffle some feathers with a lot of these. Garth Brooks, hasn't been elite in two decades. Still can play the hits and has a massive following though with sellouts. You can still talk about Peyton getting robbed of the Heisman at any wedding. You know what else you can do at every single wedding, which we did at my wedding? You can play Friends in Low Places and belt it out. It's awesome. Tennessee, gone through a little bit of an identity crisis in the 21st century. Same with Garth. It was different when he was on the cutting edge of this like new sound in the 90s. Different when Tennessee was one of the few teams that was recruiting nationally. So, Tennessee, Garth Brooks. Texas A&M, Luke Combs. Like Morgan Wallen, so, so talented. Luke Combs has this raspiness in his voice that only few artists can truly reach. Like Texas A&M, 
that he's now coming into his own in a perfect way. I saw Luke Combs, what was it? It was like two years ago. I came away thinking that he had one of the better voices I had ever heard live, but that he would be much, much better with a full set list. Just like with Texas A&M having a full three years of Jimbo Fisher's recruiting. All the tools necessary to start cranking out elite seasons, number one hits, it's all there. Short and long-term future, both very, very bright. Barring some sort of like surprise setback, they should be really good for a long time. But right now, they probably don't quite have the upset yet to be just as good as the best in their respective industries at their peak. All right, let's end it with this one. Tennessee fans, if you're mad at me about Garth, you're going to like this one. Vandy, Kenny Chesney. Country fans say he's not country. SEC fans say Vandy isn't a real SEC program. But they are, unapologetically, who they are. Kenny wants to be Jimmy Buffett and chill. Vandy wants to brag about academics and let its stadium fall apart. Maybe once every like five years, they'll have a fun, fun moment. Remember James Franklin beating Georgia in 2013? Did that game for just meant more. Remember Derek Mason riding the pony after beating Tennessee in 2018? Again, every five years. Remember back where I come from? Big, big smash hit for Kenny Chesney. That was in 2000. Five years later, summertime, 2005. Huge hit. Both have made significant contributions doing what they do. But think about it. Are, are you ever going to say that, that Kenny Chesney is one of the, the best country music artists of all time? No, no. Are you ever going to say that Vandy is an elite SEC program? No. I mean, th- there's too much history for that to ever end up as a yes. The hay is sort of in the barn. So that is <laughs> SEC teams as current country music artists. And I probably should have prefaced this a little bit more before. But again, I realize that a lot of these people are fans of specific teams, but that's not fun. That's not fun. I wanted to go into all that. So hopefully everybody enjoyed that. Next week, we're gonna do we're gonna try something new. Will Will had this great, great idea. I absolutely love this. Tweet at CJ O'Gara or at the STS pod at the STS pod a question about adulting. We're gonna answer your question on air as soon as we get enough of these good ones. Again, all Will's idea, we're calling this hashtag figuring it out. Leave us a five-star review. Subscribe. Subscribe to our newsletter too. Again, I can't say that enough. Our newsletter is awesome. Do all of those things. Hopefully everybody enjoyed this. Will, what does it mean? It means a lot, apparently. (laughs) It does mean a lot. Talk to you guys soon.